0: Warmongering propaganda against Russia has reached a fever pitch as the US pushes the crisis in Ukraine to the brink. We'll also discuss Johnson & Johnson's decision to halt vaccine production, the attempted lynching of a Black FedEx driver, more racist disenfranchisement, and other stories showing the hollow nature of so-called democracy under US capitalism. Plus we'll cover the far-right "quote unquote trucker protest" in Canada.
1: We need a new system.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's February 15th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7pm Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's start with Ukraine. That's an incredibly important topic. I know we'll be doing another full show this Wednesday for the real story on Ukraine. Let's start with that.
1: Indeed, we've been covering Ukraine, and I have to say all of us, the four of us who are doing this show together, along with our sound engineer, John preisner we're not only talking about Ukraine, but we've been in the streets at demonstrations all around the country, here in Washington, D.C., of course. Esther, your show on the ground I had substantial coverage of the demonstration in front of the White House. People are in the streets because the danger of a new major war, perhaps the biggest war in 70 years, is a possibility. Last night, we had a really important seminar, our monthly seminar for Patreons, the subscribers to the show, the people who really allow the show to keep going. We talked exclusively last night about Ukraine. And as you mentioned, Nicole, Uh, We're going to spend the full hour for the Real Story episode, which comes out on Breakthrough News on Wednesday night and then as a podcast Thursday morning, again, on the crisis manufactured by the United States and NATO powers. So we have a full week. We have a focus not only on Ukraine, not only on the war crisis. There's a lot of other important topics, as you mentioned. But I want to start today's show with... A remarkable exchange between National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Jake Tapper. The two Jakes, by the way, are extremely militaristic voices. I don't know if you remember, Jake Tapper was condemning... Elizabeth Warren back in the Democratic Party primary debates because she said that she would renounce first use of nuclear weapons. Do you remember that? Like, she he was like, Do you think it's a good idea to take that chip away from America? Like, the idea that the U.S. would not launch a nuclear war? Anyway, the two Jake's very militaristic, very warlike. Jake Sullivan, in this case, though, is actually more aggressive. Let's listen, and then I want to get, I want to make a few comments and get your reactions as well. You've been warning about the Russians using a false flag operation to justify invading Ukraine. That's a strong claim to make without presenting a shred of evidence. Is there anything more you can tell the public, a public that might be justifiably rather skeptical of claims about intelligence? Well, let me make three points on this. First, we're not putting forward this intelligence to start a war, which has happened in the past, Jake. We are putting forward this intelligence to stop a war. And I think that fundamentally gives it at the outset a different level of credibility. Secondly, this is consistent with the Russian playbook. We have seen them do this before many times. You ask any Russia expert, they will point to examples of where Russia has used false flag operations as pretext to start military action. And then third, if you look at the Russian media, they are laying the groundwork for a potential pretext by raising the possibility of attacks by Ukrainian forces on either Russians themselves or Russia's proxy forces in the Donbas. All right. That's really something there from our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. All right. Well, I've been on Russian media and I've listened to Russian media, both the radio, Sputnik and RT. If anything, the coverage is uh, reflecting a perplexed perception in Russia and by Russians that the United States is creating a crisis when there was no crisis, that Russia has no intention, as the Russian leadership has said over and over again, of actually invading Ukraine. The Russians do want a change in the status quo. They want the U.S. to stop placing advanced weapons that target Russians in Ukrainian territory. They don't want Ukraine to become a staging ground for NATO. But when you just think about the false flag attacks, I mean, like, what is he talking about, Walter? I mean, obviously, the last big war that Russia was involved in, right, was World War II. That wasn't a false flag attack. That was the Nazis invading the Soviet Union and 27 million Soviets died. So, I mean, the Russians haven't been invading country after country. That's the United States. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as
2: is so often the case, the United States is guilty of the exact thing that they're accusing other countries of. I mean, you can go way back in history to find the beginnings of this pattern. I mean, you could go to, say, the beginning of the Spanish-American War or so-called Spanish-American War, where the rallying cry, the cause, the rationale for the invasion of Cuba and then the invasion of the Philippines, the colonization of those countries was the sinking of the USS Maine, the supposed sinking of this naval vessel by the Spanish. But in fact, there is no definitive evidence that such an act of aggression by the Spanish ever took place. I mean, the
1: ship did sink. but And you remember that famous exchange between the photographer Frederick Remington who was sent by the Hearst uh, newspapers to cover the coming war in Cuba, because, of course, the United States was eager to invade Cuba, eager to seize Spanish colonies. It would be Cuba, Puerto Rico, and ultimately the Philippines. But remember, Frederick Remington, the photographer, telegrams back to Hearst, the newspaper publisher, and says, everything is quiet. There is no trouble. There will be no war. I wish to return. And to which... Hurst writes back, "Please remain, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war." An unbelievable exchange and it sums up so well the relationship
2: between the US military imperial establishment and the media and that pattern repeated over and over and over again. I mean some other highlights of false flag attacks that the US has used to justify its wars are the Gulf of Tonkin incident. That was in 1965, where a U.S. patrol ship was supposedly fired upon, and then that was used as a pretext by the Johnson administration to send hundreds of thousands of additional troops to Vietnam. Then there was, of course, the infamous weapons of mass destruction lie in 2002, 2003. That turned out to be an absolute falsehood, an absolute falsehood by the Bush administration claiming that Iraq was in possession of weapons of mass destruction and was developing nuclear weapons. And that turned out to be completely false.
1: Esther, Walter is talking about something that I know you and I fully remember because for the whole year before the U.S. invaded Iraq, it was... Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. They're going to threaten their neighbors. They're going to threaten us. Remember, Condoleezza Rice suggested that the next terrorist attack, like the one that happened on September 11th, 2001, would be a mushroom cloud, meaning that it would be a nuclear weapon. I mean, the American foreign policy interventionist orientation is always about false flags. I mean, Libya, 2011. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, it's very frustrating to Listen to this kind of coverage, this steady drumbeat for war. And it's frustrating that, you know, basic history and facts, you know, are still ignored in the coverage in terms of what the American people are told and believe. You know, I find it especially distressing that there are these lies and deception in this buildup to war in Ukraine or against Russia, just like in the buildup to the attacks on Iraq that you mentioned and or Vietnam. So, you know, basic things are left out of the coverage, you know, the the movement of NATO to Russia's border. And that after Western countries have invaded Russia or the former Soviet Union at least four times in history, right, that we talked about before, and ignoring that Russia insists on its security, Right. They ignore the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine in 2014. They keep talking about a Russian invasion of Crimea when the people in Crimea voted to rejoin Russia, you know, and they ignore the Russian population in Ukraine, in the east of Ukraine, that has been in a basic uh, rebellion and a separatist movement because of the the Nazi regime kind of installed in Kiev. So these are things that are ignored. And basically, right now, I see that so many of the stories are about Really, what is the truth? You know, there's this spin, like a rewriting of history. And you think that this can't happen again after Iraq, but it's happening. And you see the so-called liberal media constantly taking the talking points of the right wing media and the far right media. And that's what I hear when I hear Jake Sullivan on CNN.
1: Yeah, me too. And just for the people who might be listening to our show for the first time, The Nazis that Esther referred to, that's what actually happened in February 2014, like eight years ago this month. There were protests in the Maidan, meaning the main square in Kiev, after the Yanukovych government, which was a neutral government sort of straddling between East and West, rejected the European Association Agreement that would allow Ukraine to come into as a partner with the EU, but under conditions of extreme economic austerity, similar to what was imposed on the people of Greece. And so Yanukovych said, no, anti-Russian protests started in Maidan. John McCain and Victoria Newland, both Democrats and Republicans, Victoria Newland had been Hillary Clinton's main spokesperson, first spokesperson when she became Secretary of State, and then she was an Assistant Secretary of State. They were actually in the protest supporting the protesters. So the government of Yanukovych made a deal making concessions to the protesters saying, yes, we can have early elections, meaning elections he'd probably lose. There can be a devolution of central authority to regions, another demand of the protesters. But the next day after they signed the agreement, on February 22nd, 2014, Nazi forces, the right sector and other fascist forces in Ukraine were the muscle. They were the shock troops that stormed the parliament, dispersed the parliament, sent the president fleeing for his life. And at that moment, the United States political officials from both parties said this was a great day for Ukrainian democracy. And that new very, very right wing government in Ukraine carried out very important discriminatory actions against Russian-speaking people in the East who are more culturally and ethnically and geographically connected to Russia. And it was at that time that Putin gave the go-ahead for a referendum in Crimea where people voted in June 2014 to affix Crimea back with Russia where it had been part of Russia for many centuries. Those were the events. Now, we're not saying that the Zelensky government today is a Nazi government. It's not. The Zelensky government today is sort of a a centrist government. But Ukraine is essentially under the domination of the United States and NATO. And you even hear Zelensky protesting against the U.S. creating a crisis uh, that's hurting, creating, manufacturing a crisis. Zelensky says the Russians are not about to invade. But all of this hysteria actually is hurting our economy. Ukraine is already very poor. I think it's the poorest country now in Europe and people are hungry. And the last thing Ukraine needs is a crisis. So anyway, Nicole, we're gonna wrap up on this subject. As as you know, we're gonna talk about it a full hour on the Real Story segment. But one last comment from me at least, which is this is a headline from the Wall Street Journal. Biden warns Putin of quote, swift and severe costs close quote, of invading Ukraine. Well, what are those costs? Is the United States gonna send troops to Ukraine? No. Is the United States gonna mobilize NATO to fight a war in at the Ukraine-Russian border? There's no indications of that whatsoever. In fact, Biden is saying that they're not gonna do that. The swift and severe costs are going to be economic sanctions against Russia which will undoubtedly hurt Ukrainians and other people in Europe. But the fact of the matter is, with all of this talk, all of this rhetoric, the United States and NATO are not actually prepared for a war with Ukraine, which makes this all the more ridiculous on their part because they're generating a war crisis where wars actually could break out. This is the kind of circumstances under which Accidents happen and wars start inadvertently. Again, the most reckless imperial kind of foreign policy on the part of Washington. And they could meet Russia's demands. Don't put advanced weapons and don't use Ukraine as a staging ground for NATO to threaten Russia. Why can't they just say yes to that? Anyway, let's go on to the next story, which is, of course, the shocking story that J&J, at the moment when J&J is one of the vaccine manufacturers, when most of the world is still desperately in need of vaccines, the capitalists at J&J have decided to halt production in the factory that produces the vaccine because they want to make something that will be more profitable.
0: Yep, it's a another extremely, extremely horrendous, disgusting story that really says a lot about capitalism and says a lot about, you know, how different countries have been handling this pandemic. I'm going to read from a New York Times article about this. It starts, Johnson and Johnson's easy to deliver COVID-19 shot is the vaccine of choice for much of the developing world. Yet the American company, which has already fallen far behind its deliveries to poorer countries, late last year, quietly shut down the only plant making usable batches of the vaccine, according to people familiar with the decision. The facility has instead been making an experimental but potentially more profitable vaccine to protect against an unrelated virus. The halt is temporary. The plant is expected to start churning out the COVID vaccine again after a pause of a few months. And it's not clear whether it has had an impact on vaccine supplies yet, thanks to stockpiles. But over the next several months, the interruption has the potential to reduce the supply of Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine by a few hundred million doses. Other facilities have been hired to produce the vaccine, but either aren't up and running yet or haven't received regulatory approval to send what they're making to be bottled. The article continues, Johnson & Johnson's move also blindsided officials at two of the company's most important customers, the African Union and COVAX, the clearinghouse responsible for getting vaccines to poor countries. And (laughs) leaders of these organizations learned of the halt in production from New York Times reporters. Wow. Wow. like, let's pull out a little bit and just look at this from a bigger lens. So essentially, Johnson & Johnson developed a vaccine that they thought was gonna be uniquely good. It's gonna be tougher to deliver two shots. So Johnson & Johnson does this one-shot vaccine. They've developed it. A lot of countries have ordered a lot of shipments, a lot of countries, and COVAX, this you know multinational, this global organization to try to get vaccines in the hands of countries who don't have it has also ordered millions of shots. But all of a sudden, Johnson & Johnson says, well, no, we're gonna we're gonna work on something else, even though we're still in the middle of a pandemic, even though the United States is coming close to one million deaths. And that's the United States where vaccines are everywhere. And they're, you know, when you're looking at other countries, the vaccine of any kind is, you know, much less available and much less used. And a lot of people in a lot of different countries don't have access to it. Um, and right before this happened, so this is happening right now, this halt is happening right now, right before the Omicron variant in August, Johnson & Johnson was sending vaccines that were produced in South Africa. They were sending those to Europe, while South Africa had orders for 31 million doses in with Johnson & Johnson. And the New York Times was able to get a hold of uh, the contract that Johnson & Johnson signed with South Africa, and there's a clause in it that says you can't keep these, like you have to send them out, even though your country needs them and they're being made right here. This was while South Africa was being devastated by the Delta variant. And then the Omicron variant emerged from that country in August when this was happening, just 7% of people in South Africa had been vaccinated. So again, like these are these profit making decisions that Johnson and Johnson is making, not with anything else in mind, only with profit in mind. The unrelated virus that they're working on instead of getting the vaccine that we know works that countries have already ordered instead of getting that out is for a very much more rare virus. And we also know it's the virus that they're working on a vaccine for. There is no other vaccine out. And so Johnson & Johnson is trying to be the first one to do it. And it's a virus that the majority of poorer countries aren't even testing for right now. So the only reason Johnson & Johnson is doing this is literally, like you said, Brian, because it's more profitable, because it's happening in Western countries.
1: It's a perfect example, really, of why there needs to be a socialist reconstruction in society. It's a perfect example. Why should this small group of capitalists the small group of capitalists who are not in the factory, they're not the ones actually, they're not the scientists, they're not the researchers, they're not the chemists, they're not the workers, they're not the people driving the vaccine. They just own the factory, right? They own the company. They decide, they decide. The democracy extends to their board of directors, not to the masses of people, not to society. So, you know, democracy, meaning the rule of the people, is camouflage to really be, in our society, the dictatorship of the capitalists. You know, there's a lot of controversy in socialism about the formulation that Lenin used and resuscitated from Marx, saying that socialism would be the dictatorship of the proletariat. And so people thought, like, oh, that means Lenin is for a dictatorship. What he really means is that they were for a class dictatorship that would be different from the class dictatorship of bourgeois society. We live in a class dictatorship, Walter. The class dictatorship goes like this. The capitalists like the J and J capitalists or the landlords or the bankers, they own everything and they decide what gets produced and what doesn't get produced. They make those decisions. Nobody else has a right because we don't, we don't own the property. It's not public property. And we get to vote every two or four years. If you're homeless, you have the right to vote every two or four years, but you don't have the right to a home. But landlords have the right to evict you and make you homeless. Anyway, it's, it's this understanding. I mean, dictatorship is a word that is, let's put it frankly, it's not a very popular term these days. <laughs> no, it's not. But the United States dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is always masked as a people's democracy or the democracy of the people.
2: Yeah, Brian, that's absolutely right. I mean, only about a third of people in the United States can name their congressman, but every person in the United States can name their boss. And that's because your boss has so much more of an impact on your life. I mean, they run the dictatorship in which you're forced to spend about a third of your life just in order to survive. You never get to vote for them. You never get to vote for their bosses or their bosses' bosses or the board of directors that runs the company and makes these life-or-death decisions. And yet workers are the ones who do all of the work. I mean, if it was up to those workers in the Johnson & Johnson factory, hey, do you want to produce this potentially helpful vaccine that would make a lot more profit for the company? Or would you like to make the vaccine that we know for sure is going to save potentially millions of people's lives? I think, I think pretty much every worker on that assembly line would have chosen to make the life-saving COVID vaccine, but they don't have that power because we, in fact, live in a dictatorship of the rich.
1: And one other thing, just so people are clear, Walter, that we're not syndicalists, that we're Marxists. It's not simply about the workers in that factory. It's about society. That factory should be, those companies should be nationalized. They should be under the control of the people. A people's democracy, an expansive democracy would decide, what do we want that factory to produce? Not a small group of capitalists.
0: Right. There's another example of this that was earlier this summer, Abbott pharmaceutical workers at a main factory spent weeks destroying, we talked about this on the show, they spent weeks destroying millions of rapid COVID tests because, and I know it's hard to imagine in the moment we're in right now, but at the time in June and July this past summer, those COVID tests were not in demand because cases had dropped so much in, in in June and July. A short quote from another New York Times article, quote, a site manager for Abbott Laboratories stood before rows of employees to announce layoffs. The company canceled contracts with suppliers and shuttered the only other plant making the test in Illinois, dismissing a workforce of 2000 people. The site manager said, quote, the numbers are going down. And he told the workers of the demand for testing, saying it wasn't their fault. Quote, this is all about money, unquote. And he's right. It's all about money. It was about money when Abbott Pharmaceuticals decided to just lay off 2,000 people even though they were making something that we would obviously need in coming months. Uh, It was about money when they decided, well, the remaining people who are working in the main factory, we're going to have you all destroy these tests because we can't sell them at the amount we want to sell them for, even though in other countries they're giving these out for free. Like, I know it would cost more in postage to send these things out to people in the United States, but it would be a much bigger benefit than it would be to just destroy them, which is what they did. And it was about money for Johnson and Johnson making the decisions we've talked about today. But again, if we were able to actually make decisions, not based on money, not based on, you know, how much something costs, but based on the actual needs that we have, especially in the middle, again, the middle of a pandemic, when there are more variants coming, that would make all the difference. If we'd had those millions of rapid COVID tests this summer, maybe Delta wouldn't have been as bad. I mean, it, wouldn't have been, you would have known. Maybe Omicron wouldn't have broke out the way it did around the holidays and people could have had a, you know, an easier holiday time with family. These things are easy to see. These things are easy to see when you have people in charge who care about people. And it's irrelevant when the people who are in charge only care about profit.
1: If we had a society that really put public health first instead of profit, you'd have contact, testing and tracing that's how the Chinese basically defeated COVID at least have defeated it so far. And by the way, the Chinese are not locked down. I mean, there is wherever there's a new outbreak, there's a temporary lockdown, but Chinese society is not in the state that the United States is not only is the death count under 5,000 compared to 900,000 here, but you know, the Chinese society is pretty much open for business and recreation. I want to go on to another story because we're talking about the social basis of class dictatorship, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. But there is this kind of formal democracy where people get the right to vote every two or four years, except Esther, even on the basis of formal democracy, the capitalists or at least some sectors of the capitalist class and their supporters are waging a war against voting rights especially when it comes, as we've been saying over and over again on this show, against the voting rights of black Americans, which for a couple hundred years has been a centerpiece of the basic struggle for equality in the United States. Anyway, there's new stories coming out about what the new voting restriction laws will look like. And we have some real direct evidence now.
3: Absolutely. And Kind of leading into that, I want us to remember what we talked about last week when we mentioned the statement put out by Putin and Xi after their last summit, and they— one of the important things that they mentioned was that the United States and and these countries in Europe don't have any monopoly on what is called democracy. They wanted to expand it to include some of the things that you're just talking about, you know, not just going into a voting booth every four years, but also do you have a right to health care? Do you have a right to housing? you know do you have a right to get a vaccine in the middle of a pandemic right do you have rights on your job in terms of how your workplace runs for example so these are things that are important parts of democracy and so i've thought about that in terms of kind of a lot of our themes today but The Washington Post has reported that as voters in Texas use mail-in ballots leading up to this coming up March 1st state primary, thousands of ballots are being rejected because voters did not meet one of these new voter suppression tactics to require an identification number on the inside of a return envelope. So according to the story, there were 3,600 ballots returned in Harris County where Houston is located, and 40 percent of those I guess I would say rejected ballots lack this ID number in the suburb county Williamson County near Austin. Twenty five percent of people's votes were returned because they lacked this number. So the article includes reaction from Chris Davis, Williamson County's elections chief, who said, quote, 25 percent of mail-in ballots from the starting blocks is a big deal for our county. We've never seen it before. And yes, our hope is that we can get these voters to correct the deficits in a timely fashion. But what if they don't? Because three months ago, they didn't have to. There's a learning curve. There are going to be possibly painful lessons that their vote doesn't count because they weren't aware, end quote. So there may be time for voters to correct these mistakes. The return rate is going down. But election administrators and voting advocates are still very concerned because they point out that the rejected ballots are an example of this impact of SB1. That's the state law passed. That was one of dozens of voter suppression laws passed by Republicans after Trump lost in the 2020 presidential race. So in addition to these ID requirements, there are other impacts already being seen. In January, Texas counties also began rejecting a high percentage of mail ballot applications, which now require the same ID. The state has been late in sending out new voter information cards with all of these changes. And they say that this they're late because there's a paper crunch, you know, because of like supply lines or whatever. And then... As Election Day approaches, there will be penalties on poll watchers who impede the ability of partisan poll watchers to observe the elections. So, you know, people are trying to figure out what is the you know, what is impeding the access of a poll watcher? You know, we want to know, are these people going to be armed? You know, we live in an armed Country, you know, there's just a lot of concern about the intimidation factor on voters, and then there's new penalties for anyone who registers to vote or casts a ballot but is not eligible to do so. People probably have been hearing about a case in Tennessee, Pamela Moses, who was just sentenced to six years in prison for Mm -hmm. trying to register to vote in 2019, Mm -hmm. right? That was in Tennessee, but Texas has its own cases. So the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals said that it will consider an appeal from Crystal Mason, a Texas woman sentenced to five years behind bars for casting a provisional ballot in the 2016 election. And then last year, a 62-year-old African-American man, Hervis Earl Rogers... He had charges brought against him that could put him in prison for the rest of his life. Mm. And he was being held on $100,000 bail for three days until the nonprofit Bail Project posted his bail. And so as I looked at some of these stories, the writers were also pointing out that these type of extreme charges and sentences only go to black people. And that when white men have voted erroneously or fraudulently, especially during 2020, there were actually white voters, you know, voting for Trump, like under the name of like a dead spouse or something. These people received like probation or a few days. So I wanted to point that out. And then. The other thing we have to keep our eye on is our our friends over at the Supreme Court, they're continuing their assault on voting rights. On February 7th, they issued an order allowing Alabama to use a congressional map that dilutes the voting power of black people in that state, which make up 27% of the population. And so they halted a district court's injunction that barred Alabama from using the new maps in the upcoming 2022 elections. And that district court used a precedent to show in a very detailed way more than 200 pages how Alabama lawmakers used the tactic of packing and cracking to disenfranchise black voters. You know, packing a large portion of black Alabamans into one district, including parts of Birmingham and Montgomery, and then parceling out the remainder of the black vote to be included in majority white areas. So in one district, the 7th, district is more than 50% black, but no other district is more than 30% black. Justice Kavanaugh said that it was too close to the election to change the map and very concerning because this, this extreme right Supreme Court will hear the case next term. And voting rights advocates say that it's likely that the court could gut what remains of the Voting Rights Act and allow so-called race-neutral state laws to override any effort to sustain Black majority voting districts and representation. And so that's something we have to keep an eye on along with these other laws that really the Supreme Court is trying to uphold around the country.
1: Yeah, we're going to move on to other stories because time is running short. But I do want to just reference the case that you mentioned, Esther, the Memphis case. I mean, I'm going to read real quick from the Atlanta Black Star. Attorneys for the Black Lives Matter Memphis founder. She was the founder of Black Lives Matter in Memphis. She was sentenced to six years in jail for voter fraud. And the the reason they were going after her, was that she had been convicted of an offense in 2015. She lost her right to vote. She had been told that because she was on probation or off probation that she now had the right to vote, and she voted. So this is, as her attorney says, a vendetta-type prosecution, and the judge, as her said, acted like a bully and slammed her with six years in jail for voting. Anyway, she's an activist. She's an organizer. But right. this is what they do. So just so people understand, it's not voter fraud all the time. There's a lot of cases where people think they have the right to vote.
3: She was told she had a right to she vote by her probation a probation right officer. Vote.
1: Yeah, and now still. Well, anyway, you could go through a whole litany of crimes committed by U.S. officials, and Donald none Trump. of them, and none of them are behind bars. Anyway, Nicole, let's go to another story. Of course, Ahmed Arbery a tragic case, a case where this young black man lynched by three white men, a case we would not have known about, a case that the prosecution was covering up, but only because of the movement of people. Again, the uprising against racism in the spring, late spring of 2020 and into the summer, did something positive happen and his killers were actually brought to trial. But again, we might not have ever heard of it. The killers would never have even been put on trial this other new story. And again, it just indicates how this isn't really that unusual.
0: Yeah, it is extremely similar. In Brookhaven, Mississippi, FedEx driver DeMontario Gibson was delivering packages on January 24th with two white men who he hadn't interacted with before chased him in a pickup truck for about seven minutes and fired at least five shots at the van he was driving. I'm reading now from the Washington Post, quote, Gibson, who said he was driving a Hertz fan at the time, but was in his full FedEx uniform, told reporters Thursday that he believes that Brandon Case and his father, Gregory Case, chased and shot at him because he's black and thought he didn't belong in the neighborhood. Gibson said, quote, they came out of nowhere. The father and son were arrested February 1st. Remember, this happened January 24th. It was more than a week after this incident Brandon Case, who's 35, who's the son, was charged with feloniously attempting to cause bodily injury with a firearm and a deadly weapon. And Gregory Case, the dad, who's 58, was charged with unlawfully and feloniously conspiring with his son to commit aggravated assault. But that's not what happened. Like, let me read you exactly what happened. At about 7 p.m., Gibson was delivering packages when he saw a white pickup truck approaching him and honking its horn. Court records show that Gregory Chase was driving the truck. That's the dad. When the vehicle cut him off as he was trying to leave the neighborhood, Gibson told the Mississippi Free Press that he attempted to swerve around the pickup truck to get out of the neighborhood. But as he drove past a couple houses, Gibson said there was another man on the road. This was Brandon Case and had his gun pointed directly at him. Gibson says, there's another guy standing in the middle of the street, pointing a gun at my windows and signaling to me to stop with his hands, as well as mouthing the word stop. I shake my head no, I hide behind the steering wheel and swerve around him as well. As I swerve, he starts firing shots into my vehicle. That's attempted murder. That's not these little charges that they're getting charged with, attempting to cause bodily injury. C- You're Conspiracy
1: shooting. to commit assault. No, Wait, like, that's an attempted murder. You're shooting
0: into somebody's car. You are shooting into somebody's van. You're trying to pull somebody over. You're trying to stop somebody from leaving. You're blocking someone's car. That is attempted murder. And the wild part of this, too, is he calls the cops and tells them what's happening. And the dispatcher says, well, actually, I just got a call of a suspicious person at this address. And Gibson's like, well, sir, I'm not a suspicious person. I work for FedEx. I was just doing my job you know, I was thinking like the suspicious people are the guys standing in the street with the guns.
1: That is suspicious. And when you start shooting the gun at people you don't know who are driving. Let's go on to another story. Again, sort of in the same vein, Elon Musk, we know, is very rich. And we also know that his father was the part owner of an emerald mine in Zambia. So anyway, Elon Musk so rich and of course, such a kind of popular billionaire celebrity, the workers, especially black workers are not thinking kind thoughts about Elon Musk right now, Esther, because they are the victims, according to their lawsuit of systematic discrimination at a Tesla factory.
3: Absolutely. So, when i first saw this story all i could think was that you know the roots of elon musk coming from south africa we've been talking about apartheid we've been talking about israel being labeled an apartheid state we've been talking about decades of genocidal treatment of south africans under that system and so he comes to the united states he's already rich he's able to get government contracts i think he has does something with nasa or he is nasa now <laughs> i don't know something like that
1: yeah, it's it's it's, it's- Elon Musk and NASA are co-partners.
3: Exactly. So, So he's getting some of my tax dollars, but he is able to discriminate against people in one of his California plants. So a state agency is actually suing Tesla, accusing it of allowing racial discrimination and harassment in a San Francisco Bay Area factory and the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing said hundreds of Tesla workers this is not just a few people have reported being subjected to racist graffiti and widespread use of slurs including from supervisors this is not like just like some joke coming up you know on who you work with you know being racist but They said that they're accusing the company of discriminatory practices and said that black employees were assigned to more physically arduous work and denied transfers and promotions and more often than other workers and really just discriminated in terms of job assignments, discipline, pay, and they were even like kind of like segregated into like one area of the plant that they call like the plantation or something. This is really just horrible. Treatment And it just kind of goes back to just our theme today is, you know, what is democracy? What is democracy on your job, your ability to have some agency on your job and the voting booth, you know, being a FedEx worker or a UPS worker being shot at by people on the street? It's just like a... There is a pattern here that the United States or people like Jake Sullivan on CNN, they don't want to recognize how the United States is really continuing to violate the human rights of black people right here in this country. you know. And But they want to, you know, get on the high horse internationally and talk about human rights and the sovereignty of Ukrainians. We need some sovereignty right here. And so, you know, we're going to keep watching this story.
1: Yeah, thank you, Esther. Let's go on to... Um so-called truckers protest in Canada, Walter. The truckers union has denounced these protests. The mainstream media, the capitalist media, has given it like amazing coverage. The Canadian government for a long time treated the blocking of the bridges with kid gloves. I mean, can you imagine if this was indigenous people from Canada or, you know, anti-globalization protesters? I was in Quebec in 2002 for the FTAA protests, the anti-globalization protests. And during those three days, the police in Quebec, Canadian police fired tear gas canisters at us, at the demonstrators. One canister every 30 seconds landed for more than 72 hours. So it's not like the government and the police uh, don't have capacity. But anyway, Walter, these people were not only treated pretty well, they don't represent truckers, they don't represent the majority, And in fact, not only is the ultra right in America and Canada backing them, but a lot of their leaders are actually ex-cops and ex-military personnel. Go ahead. Yeah. And and of course, that has a lot to do with why the police in Canada
2: are treating them with such extreme leniency, they politically sympathize with them. A lot of them are former cops or military personnel, and they share the same overall far-right worldview in many cases with so many of the cops on the streets. So, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a disgusting case of a double standard. I mean, you're completely right. If it wasn't the Ambassador Bridge being blocked by far-right extremists, if it was an oil pipeline being blocked by indigenous activists, then the police would have used overwhelming force right away. Now, eventually, they did have to clear the Ambassador Bridge so that traffic could go through. It took them a long time to do that. They didn't truly disperse the protesters either. They were allowed to reconvene nearby. And in fact, that movement continues to grow throughout Canada. There are now demonstrations taking place in more cities. The presence in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, continues. And the phenomenon is growing worldwide. I mean, there were clashes in Paris, in Belgium. There's also a, a quote unquote, you know, freedom convoy that's gathering And in the United States, there are copycat efforts as well with millions of dollars being raised. So I think this is an extremely dangerous phenomenon. And just like after January 6th, by virtue of not taking decisive action against these far-right fascistic forces, they're being given room to grow and to in fact present themselves in the way that the corporate media is presenting them as an oppositional voice of the grassroots against the establishment. But that's not what's happening. I want to just finish off by reading reading from a statement issued by the president of the Teamsters in Canada his name is Francois Laporte so this is the actual voice of truckers right this is the organization that represents hundreds of thousands of truckers he said 90% of the truckers in Canada are vaccinated Yeah, that's right. 90% of long haul truckers in Canada are vaccinated. So Laporte said in his statement, which is titled, The Real Enemy for Truckers is COVID 19, he said, The so called freedom convoy and the despicable display of hate led by the political right and shamefully encouraged by elected conservative politicians does not reflect the values of Teamsters Canada, nor the vast majority of our members, and in fact has served to delegitimize the real concerns of most truck drivers today. I think that really says it all.
1: I want to just clarify one thing, Walter, because, you know, we're talking and we're talking, you know, we're not reading from a script. We're talking and giving our own views and presentations the point that you made about the protests are growing it's not because they represent the majority opinion in canadian society or among canadian truckers these are right wing movements that are promoting it and in fact at its peak at its peak in the protests there were about 8000 people gathered together now We've had demonstrations of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, like the idea that 8,000 people could you know, take over the capital city of Ottawa and then present themselves as a populist movement. No, they're an anti-populist movement. They're not representing the majority. They're not representing the views of most Canadians. And in fact, their movement represents a fringe that the reason it appears to be growing, and in some ways is growing, not again because it's got so much popular support, is because the way the capitalist government has dealt with it. One, the capitalists don't make a serious effort to expose the convoy for what it is. They don't want to really expose, like, they, like the way the media handled January 6th, the cops and military personnel and fascists were all working together. The FBI was warned over and over again about the possibility of violence on January 6th. Why didn't they act? Why did the Capitol Police come, you know, in soft uniforms rather than riot gear, which they certainly would have done if we were marching on the Capitol? Why was that? It was because the capitalist establishment and many of the forces within the state apparatus have an affinity with the fascists. Just the way the reason the Proud Boys were able to You know, rain havoc on people here in Washington, D.C. on December 14th, 2020, you know, three weeks before January 6th. They were working with the Metropolitan Police Department. They were being treated with kid gloves. Anyway, we'll keep following this story. I want to go on real quick because time is almost out. We have about 10 minutes left, Walter. Afghanistan. There's a couple important points about Afghanistan that we wanted to bring back to our audience. One is there's a little bit of a fallout between Biden and the Pentagon over who's responsible for the chaotic end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm looking at an article from The Washington Post here. Biden says he is rejecting critical accounts from commanders about the Afghanistan operation. Uh, he said to NBC News, you know, he's rejecting this idea that evacuation of Afghanistan, the panicked evacuation in August was mishandled, that there were critical mistakes made that imperiled the lives of U.S. service members, uh, that imperiled the lives of Afghans who were trying to evacuate from the country, including those who had some kind of interaction with the U.S. government in the past and were therefore fearful for their lives. He's rejecting them, right? So this didn't happen. I mean, I can't imagine this being true. Now, what these reports have the function of doing, you know, I think why The Washington Post is so kind of gleeful about reporting this is because they wanted the U.S. to stay in Afghanistan, right? The corporate media was opposed to the pullout altogether, and they thought that Biden should have just let the war go on forever. Now, at the same time, certainly it's true, I think, that the way that the occupation of Afghanistan ended seriously delegitimize the political leadership, the Biden administration, in the eyes of the military establishment. And so I think that Biden has really been kind of falling over himself to prove that he's really tough about foreign policy, about representing, defending the interests of the U.S. imperial establishment, the U.S. empire around the world, in order to essentially insulate himself from further criticism along these lines. So I think there's sort of a complex thing going on on many levels here. And then this is happening at the same time as as a drama is playing out over whether or not everyday Afghans are going to be able to get some kind of humanitarian relief by virtue of the unfreezing of Afghan government funds that have been frozen since the Taliban took over the government. The United States says that they don't want to legitimize the Taliban government. They don't want to contribute to human rights violations. But of course, there would be ways for this money to go directly to Afghans who are suffering under such extraordinary circumstances due to the free fall in the value of the Afghan currency and just generally economic activity in the country overall. The United States is essentially saying, no, we control the central bank of Afghanistan. I mean, it's an un unbelievable kind of colonial mentality. So I think that that is also part of the public debate in the United States uh, along similar lines.
1: Well, freezing Afghan funds is one way to put it. Another way to put it is the United States has looted the money that belongs to the people of Afghanistan and to whoever their government is. The U.S. sees nine billion dollars. It's the Afghan people's money. And now Donald, I mean, I'm sorry, I almost called Joe Biden Donald Trump. How did that happen? <laughs> so now Joe Biden is like saying, look, we're going to give half of that $9 billion that we stole from you back to you, and we're going to give the other half to Americans who are the families of victims who died in September 11th, 20 years ago. Can you imagine a government just seizes somebody else's money, the money of the country, I mean, the Taliban weren't in charge of these funds for the last 20 years. This was the Afghan government funds that the United States created, right? So it's the Afghan government's money. The U.S. seizes it and said, look, we're going to distribute it to the Americans. It shows the colonial character of the U.S. government, as you pointed out, Walter. I mean, this is exactly what Woodrow Wilson did in 1915 when the U.S. Marines landed in Haiti, went into the capital in Port-au-Prince, took all the money out of Haiti's bank and brought it to New York and brought it to a New York City bank controlled by, I think it was the Rockefeller Bank. Anyway, it's colonialism. And the idea that Biden can say, oh, we're going to split the money between Americans and you. And the U.S. media is like, ho-hum, Biden has decided to do something humanitarian for Afghans. Like, no, he didn't. (laughs) He's making sure that many, many Afghan children actually starve.
3: Yeah, I can believe it. You ask, can we believe it? Then this is part of a pattern of international piracy. I mean, remember that the US is backing the UK and continuing to hold one point seven billion in gold that belongs to the Venezuelan people. Mm-hmm. And and not only holding it, but saying that Juan Guaido, this unelected person, actually has the right to the gold. You know, the same way that they kidnapped the Huawei executive and they kidnapped the Venezuelan diplomat, Alex Saab, and had him held. So, you know, the, yeah, this is part of a pattern. And it's, you know, we can think of neocolonialism in a lot of different ways. But one way that we can think of it is this end game of just international piracy and kidnapping that they think is legitimate.
1: If some young people in the middle of a political protest go into a store and steal some stuff, which we're not recommending as a tactic, but let's say they do because that happens, they're called looters. But when the United States government representing the biggest banks in the military-industrial complex, loots countries, loots their resources, seizes their money. It's nothing but looting. I would never have seen the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN use the same sort of colorful rhetoric to demonize this kind of looting. Anyway, talking about looters, I want to turn to Donald Trump's post-presidency. Here's the New York Times article. Selling Trump, a profitable post-presidency like no other. Much as he did while in the White House, Donald Trump has thoroughly blurred the lines between his political ambitions and his business interests with a wide-ranging set of money-making ventures. Now, the funny thing about this story is that it's not true that it's unlike any other. I mean, Bill and Hillary Clinton made, according to their, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was 60 to $80 million from speaking engagements after Clinton left the White House. So like, what is that? But I think the thing about Donald Trump is he's actually acting like a small time merchant. In early December, Donald J. Trump put on a tuxedo and boarded the private jet of a scrap metal magnet and crypto miner for a short flight across Florida, touching down at an airport in Naples. There, a long red carpet marked the pathway into a Christmas decorated hangar filled with supporters of Mr. Trump who had paid, get this, 10000 to $30,000 each for the privilege of attending a party and taking a photo with him. The event had all the trappings of a typical high-end fundraiser, a giant American flag, a lectern, chandeliers, and an open bar. Frank Stallone's band provided the music and anti-Biden Let's Go Brandon Banner hung from the rafters. But the money raised did not go to Mr. Trump's political operation. Instead, Mr. Trump's share of the evening's proceeds went straight into his own pocket, according to people familiar with the arrangement. Okay, so Trump is doing actually what all the presidents do, which is after they leave office, they make lots of money. But it's kind of funny in the way he does it. Have the three of you seen the um, the Donald Trump coins? I'm holding up a newspaper. It's called The Mystery of the Trump Coin. Walter, have you laid your eyes on a Trump coin? I've never seen one. Nicole? I have not. Okay, the three, the four of us are out of it. We don't really know what's going on.
0: Because we haven't seen the Trump coins.
1: The novelty coins are simple, glistening tokens of admiration for former President Donald J. Trump. They're also one of the hottest products going. And Walter, you don't know about this? Never once heard of it. Oh man, you're out of it. There's a style (laughs) for every taste, each featuring a portrait of Mr. Trump. Sometimes he's rendered in gold, staring thoughtfully into the distance. In others, he's smirking in silver, raising a thumbs up, or even riding a missile while a bald eagle soars behind him. Among all the options, one version stands out. Known online simply as Trump coin, it's been a favorite of right-wing social media and fringe news sites. It advertised between claims of stolen elections or conspiracy theories about global cabals. Some ads even describe the coin as a kind of cryptocurrency, suggesting it would soon be worth thousands. The coin itself, I'll finish with this, features Mr. Trump's face embossed in gold on a base, shining silver. His slogan, Keep America Great, is written in an arc over his head. It could be yours too, Nicole, for almost nothing, just $9.99 plus shipping.
0: Gosh, I'm going to have to pass.
1: We're going to have to ask our audience. Somebody out there has to know more about Trump coin. I just didn't know about it. Anyway, let's just call it Walter, the Trump hustle. Let's finish out. I
0: don't know if our audience is going to be the ones who are extremely familiar with this either. At least I'm hoping.
1: Well, we're going to find out. We'll see what kind (laughs) of feedback we get. Walter, we're going to go to the big stories from Liberation News. But finally, Esther, as we have promised everyone, we're always going to do say something People hopeful. Victory. People's, people's victory. People's victory. A product of struggle.
3: Okay, yes. So the House passed legislation last week that will finally free the post office of these onerous rules and regulations that are crippling it and that have required it to have like the fund pensions for decades in advance. And so this is our post office. This is the people's post office. Just to,
1: just, and just to be clear, the, this, the attempted destruction and Bankrupting of the post office was an effort by the right wing and corporate America to privatize the post office.
3: Absolutely. So this legislation is going to the Senate. It's expected to have bipartisan support again and Biden is expected to sign it. Second, the Me Too legislation passed both houses, and that is expected to be signed also. And this is the first legislation addressing sexual harassment on the job and the fact that employers have been able to sexually harass and discriminate against women. And then finally, I want to say that Eminem took a knee during the Super Bowl, in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives, right. and after he was told not to do it, and after they were trying to censor what people did during the performance, and so I wanna count that as a people's victory also.
1: Yeah, rap finally made it to the Super Bowl, and I think the NFL bourgeoisie, the big capitalists, who do nothing for the game but own the teams, they were clearly unhappy. Walter, the big stories in the Liberation News. Yes, I
2: definitely want to encourage everybody to check out liberationnews.org. Every day we bring you news from the national, international, and local people's struggles. One article from the last week titled, Union Election Rematch, Bessemer Workers Continue to Fight Amazon's Anti-Labor Campaign. Voting is Underway. A rematch between Amazon and workers who are trying to form the first union for an Amazon warehouse in the United States. They are getting a rematch because Amazon so blatantly violated the rules and regulations governing how a fair union election is supposed to take place that the government ordered them to have a do-over. Another article is titled, One Year After Deadly Winter Storm. What has Texas done to fix the power grid? This was an article that was originally published by a new organization. It's called Public Ownership of Water and Electric Resources, or POWER. POWER began organizing after the 2021 winter storm in Texas. You can check out their analysis on Liberation News. And then another article is a report from a demonstration in the Bronx. One month after deadly Bronx fire, tenants honor the victims and rally for their rights. This is about the Twin Parks fire, the tragic fire that killed 17 people, including eight children, because of landlord negligence. People are continuing to fight to demand justice and accountability in that case. So as always, please sign up for our newsletter. You can find the link to do that at the top and check back every day on liberationnews.org.
1: Remember everyone, if you like this show, if you rely on this show and you're not a subscriber, become a subscriber. It's not that much money. This is not a show that relies on any corporate support. We need the support of people who believe in what we're doing. And tomorrow we'll be back with Richard Wolf. He is a Marxist and economist. And on the Real Story episode, as we said, we're going to do a thorough analysis and assessment of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, which which is really a U.S.-Russia-NATO crisis. We're going to go into great detail once again because this crisis has the potential of developing into all-out war.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.